Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. Can premeditated murder ever be justified? To some people, the idea of murder is more palpable if it was committed in self-defense or in the effort of saving somebody else's life. But what if the victim was the perpetrator of years of abuse and neglect, and the offenders felt that the only way out was to take their tormentor's life? Do the means justify the end? You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. Evelyn Howells was born and raised in Huddersfield, which lies to the northeast of Manchester. The township was founded in the early Anglo-Saxon times and was initially renowned as a market village. During the Industrial Revolution of the early 1800s, Huddersfield became known as a hub for textile production, 
The rivers surrounding the town provided factories with the large volumes of water required to process textiles until merchandised weaving was invented and mills became a relic of the past. The area remains well regarded for wool fabric production, but the largest employer in the region is now the University of Huddersfield. In more recent times, Huddersfield is considered the origin of rugby league and the birthplace of two-time British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Evelyn was known as Eve to family and friends. In 1971, she attended a British Legion function and met David Howells, who would become her husband two years later. They soon bought a home together in a middle-class neighbourhood. The quaint bungalow came complete with ivy weaving around the windows and a large back garden which would be perfect for raising children. It wasn't long before the newlywed couple would welcome their first child, a son they named Gareth. But tragically, Gareth didn't survive and the couple experienced a deep period of mourning. As was the common attitude in those days, the couple were encouraged to try again for another baby who would take away the pain of their heartbreaking loss. Despite quickly falling pregnant again, Eve remained grief-stricken over the loss of Gareth. Friends and family noticed her personality begin to change around this time, but they reassured themselves that she would return to normal when the child arrived. But when her son Glenn was born... Eve struggled to bond with him. Glenn was a relatively content baby, but Eve would make nasty comments about him, and her handling of him was less than gentle. She also began to make strange comments that Glenn had somehow caused the death of his older sibling. Again, family believed it would take time for Eve to take to motherhood but that eventually she would come to love this little boy. Two years after Glenn's arrival, Eve and David gave birth to another son they named John. John was also a fairly happy baby, and Eve seemed to take to parenting more positively this time. But she still spoke unkindly about her children, and didn't seem as attached to them as other parents were to their children. And rather than growing closer to them as they aged, Eve became crueler and harsher in her treatment of them. It appeared as though the sorrow towards the loss of Gareth had turned into resentment of the two boys who had survived through no fault of their own. By the time the boys had started school, They had both developed odd behaviours, which drew the attention of teachers and parents alike. But it wasn't until the horrific events of 1995 that the true nature of life behind the seemingly perfect bungalow facade would be revealed. But would it provide justification for murder? 
On the evening of the 31st of August, 1995, the police received a call from a home in Dalton, Huddersfield. When police arrived at the quiet, middle-class home, they found a woman slumped over on the sofa in her living room, marring the otherwise normal family environment was the fact that the woman had clearly been brutally attacked. The back of her head was caved in, and thick red liquid oozed through her matted hair. Blood was splattered across most of the services in the room, including the ceilings. Outside the home, officers were comforting two teenage boys. They identified themselves as John aged 14, and Glenn, aged 15. They told the officers that they lived at the house and they had been the ones to call 999. They had been out walking their dog and when came home, they found their house had been broken into. When they entered the house, they found their mother, Eve, had been murdered on the family sofa. Officers inside the home had indeed found signs of a break-in and a violent attack. In the living room, the desk was upturned and personal belongings were scattered across the floor. Glenn and John mentioned that some money was missing, but they couldn't be sure if anything else was gone. The police stayed with them as they attempted to make contact with their father, David. The boys told the officers that David was at his local pub playing darts with his friends. So the police drove to the pub to collect David and inform him of his wife's murder. He appeared shocked when officers told him what had occurred and immediately asked if his boys were safe. He was driven home where he consoled and comforted the boys while the house was cordoned off for forensic examination. Eve's body was removed for an autopsy and the coroner's findings were conclusive. Eve had been beaten to death with a hammer. She had been struck at least ten times around her head and neck whilst in a seated position. It appeared as though she had been bludgeoned from behind and the attack must have occurred very quickly and spontaneously given that there were no defensive wounds on her hands or arms. The police quickly opened an investigation into a robbery gone wrong but the lead officer in the case sensed that something was off about the story right from the very beginning. For starters... John, Glenn and David seemed strangely fixated on details of the money which had been taken during the robbery. Every time officers spoke to them about what had happened, they mentioned the money, when officers would have expected them to focus on the fact that their mother had been so brutally murdered. It felt as if the family were trying to convince officers that it was a robbery and not something more sinister. And then there was the strange reaction from the two boys when they had arrived with David 
to formally identify their mother's body. The boys had been closely observed by morgue staff throughout the viewing, and at one point, Glenn looked over at John and smirked and winked. It was this simple act that prompted police to look more closely into their stories. The police knew for sure that David couldn't be involved in the murder, as he had a strong alibi which was backed up by numerous eyewitnesses and bar receipts. But they couldn't understand how or why two boys of just 14 and 15 years old would be driven to take their own mother's life so brutally. And while they suspected that John and Glenn were involved, they couldn't fathom the fact that one of the seemingly quiet and gentle boys could be the perpetrator of such a violent act. There must have been someone else involved. The data from the crime scene investigation was beginning to paint a clearer picture of the night of the attack. When blood splatter patterns were analysed, it became clear that the boys must have been in the vicinity of Eve's attack while it was happening. The blood splatter patterns on their clothing matched those found in the room where she was murdered. The blood was more concentrated on Glenn's clothing than it was on John's. But it was clear that both would have been in the room while the attack took place. This was in contrast to their statements that they were out walking their dog. The police decided to detain both boys on suspicion of murder in an effort to separate them from each other and their father in the hopes that by doing so, they would elicit a confession, or at the least, more information about what had really happened inside the Howells' home. In a somewhat unusual decision for the late 1990s, investigators secured a warrant to record conversations between the boys and their father. They allowed David to visit the boys in jail, and over the course of the coming weeks, they recorded 12 conversations between them. Whilst none of the conversations revealed exactly what had occurred inside the home, there were vague references to, quote, that night, and a comment from David to the boys, quote, we've just got to bluff it out. If you two break, then I'm in as well. So we've got to stick together. Armed with this new information and a clear link between the trio and Eve's murder, the police decided to question the family about their suspicions. They started by interviewing David. Right from the outset, David denied any involvement in the crime. He explained that his involvement only began when he realised what had happened to Eve, and in an effort to protect his children's freedom, he had attempted to provide them with a plausible cover-up. His attempts to pervert the course of justice was done out of an act of love for his two precious boys. But when investigators interviewed the boys, a very different story emerged. 
To their shock, Glenn immediately confessed that he had been the one who wielded the hammer and bludgeoned his mother to death. He defended John as being an innocent bystander who had cried and begged Glenn to stop. Glenn's explanation for why he had committed such a heinous act ran much deeper than an angry teen who despised his mother. Glenn claimed his actions were the result of a lifetime of trauma, abuse and neglect. He went into great detail as he described the events of his childhood. For both of the Howell boys, having Eve as their mother was an unpleasant experience from the very first moment of their lives. Eve had never bonded with them, and she didn't seem to care for them as other mothers cared for their children. Glenn described Eve as running the household like a dictator. Despite the pleasant facade, Eve was a strict disciplinarian, and she was obsessed with controlling every aspect of her husband and children's lives. From the time Glenn was born, he was the target of hateful words, behaviours and actions at the hand of his own mother. Eve repeatedly reinforced her controlling belief that Glenn was responsible for the death of her firstborn child, and she never let the boy forget it. The hatred Eve had for Glenn was tangible. She nicknamed him, quote, Fat Fucker and Fat Little Bastard and used the monikers to get his attention and shame him for minor misdeeds. She told him he was thick and would not get a job or get married. He would be forced to live on the street He would always be a street brat. No one would love him. In fact, he was unlovable. John didn't fare much better than Glenn, though it was no secret to anyone living in the Howells household that John was Eve's favourite. Whilst the position didn't spare John from Eve's neglect or control, he was given special privileges and he wasn't forced into the humiliating and inappropriate conduct that Glenn was required to endure. He would be given sweet tea as a reward, whereas Glenn would be lucky to receive plain bread and jam. Glenn was forced to massage his mother's naked body at every opportunity. She would hand him a bottle of lotion and make him rub it into her skin all over while attempting to divert her gaze from her so-called, quote, private parts. Eve would regularly enter the bathroom when Glenn was showering or bathing. She would take off her clothes until she was fully naked and then go to the toilet in front of him. She would make Glenn spend hours cleaning the dirt from under her fingernails and toenails and called him her body slave. As a punishment for minor transgressions, Eve would hold a lighter up to the boy's favourite stuffed toys and then gleefully threaten to burn them alive. When the boys did something Eve didn't approve of, 
she would threaten that she was going to give them up to social services as she didn't want them as her children anymore. She took particular joy in telling them that she would give them up separately so that they could never be together again. Eve was often seen smacking the boys on their backs and legs for even the most slightest fault. She would drag them away from playing with friends by their hair if they didn't respond as soon as she called them. She constantly shouted and threw objects at them. She never held them, hugged them, or told them she loved them. Despite being relatively better treated than his older brother, John still felt the effects of Eve's strange parenting and neglect. When he was just five years old, he was taken to a psychologist after being found burning five-pound notes and urinating in rubbish bins. But even with the involvement of a psychologist, his treatment at home didn't change. Glenn described Eve as a woman who was obsessed with control. She kept the fridge locked so no one could eat anything that she hadn't prepared. She weighed just 38 kilograms herself, but she would regularly put the whole family on a diet of one description or another. When the boys didn't like what she was forcing them to eat, they would hide the food in an attempt to avoid consuming it. Glenn recalled that on one occasion Eve found the food that the boys had hidden under a table in the house. It had been there for well over a week, but Eve made the boys eat the rotten remains of the meal as punishment for their deceit. Eve also had total control over the family's finances. Six years before her death, she closed the accounts that she had held with David and transferred the balance of £51,000 into her own account, leaving David with just £100 in his. Both her and David's wages would go into her account, and Eve would then transfer over what she thought her husband was allowed to spend each week. And somehow, she even managed to take control of her father's accounts too. And when he received a generous inheritance, Eve refused to release the funds to him. Investigators could hardly believe the story Glenn was telling. Eve was a schoolteacher after all. And besides, if her treatment of the boys was so terrible, then surely someone else would be aware of it. They weren't naive about the fact that people can present themselves entirely differently. But was it possible to hide such a dreadful true nature? To understand more about Eve's personality, they set about interviewing her colleagues from the school where she worked. As they did so, students and neighbours came forward to tell officers about the person she really was behind the front of a dedicated mother and teacher. Eve was a school teacher at Huddersfield Secondary School. When investigators interviewed her colleagues, they discovered Eve had long held a reputation as being unusual 
one of her colleagues went so far as to describe her as very, very disturbed. Her students felt the same and portrayed her classrooms as having a culture of fear. The same words Glenn had used to describe Eve at home came up again and again at school. She was a strict disciplinarian and ran the classroom like a dictator. Students described her as terrifying. She was nicknamed Evil Howells in reference to her real name, Eve. A colleague by the name of Maureen Smith recalled, quote, She created an atmosphere of fear like I've never experienced in 26 years of teaching. She was searing. When neighbours of the family were interviewed, they told similar stories of Eve's appalling behaviour. Neighbours recalled a specific incident where Eve had tied the boys to a kitchen table when they were just toddlers as punishment for an unspecified blunder. Quote, We used to dread them going in for bath time because of the screams that used to come from the bathroom. The screams that used to come out of there were like someone was murdering them. And another neighbour told them that he had stopped sitting in his garden because of the volume and frequency of Eve's cursing, which was usually directed at her children. Even Eve's own family were aware of her hatefulness towards her children. Her stepmother, Mary Dyson, commented, quote, She seemed to have it in for Glenn for some reason. She seemed to despise him. She never showed love. It would seem as though she despised her sons. She was very aggressive. Mary went on to say that the boy's late granddad, Harold, had often walked out in disgust when his daughter started ranting and raving. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. By the time they started school, the children had begun to demonstrate strange behaviors which were of concern to their teachers. This led to John being referred to a psychologist. When he was just five years old, John was seen repeatedly burning five-pound notes, and rather than use a toilet, he would urinate in litter bins. Strangely, he would often return home from school 
and open 18 tins of food from the pantry. He took a spoonful of food from each tin and then hid the cans around the house. He took bites out of his wooden bed frame and would regularly break toys. A psychologist who met John after Eve's murder documented that John was overly compliant and was very likely rebelling against the strict discipline that he had endured throughout his life. The environment of the life in the Howells' home was beginning to crystallize for investigators. But it was also clear that John and Glenn couldn't have carried out the horrendous murder unaided. They interviewed John for his version of events, and an even darker story emerged. John recalled that their father had been talking about murder for months, and the three of them planned the finer details together. So now, their attention turned back to David. Until now, he had feigned innocent and shock at what the boys had been involved in. But there was no way that David could have been unaware of how the children were treated or their growing hatred of their mother. Indeed, from their interviews with the boys, the police believed that David must have been mistreated by Eve. So why had David not stepped in? Why didn't he put a stop to the cruel and callous treatment of their children? It turned out that David had an even more sinister reason for becoming involved in the plot to kill Eve. Just two months before her death, David had discovered Eve was having an extramarital affair. And when David looked closer at the behaviour of his wife, he realised it had been going on under his nose for more than 12 years. The object of Eve's desires was none other than the children's godfather and family friend, Russell Hurst. Russell was also a close colleague of David and had travelled with the family on a number of overseas holidays over the years. It was later revealed that Eve would sleep with Russell while the family were visiting various locations as a family. This was the final straw for David the man who had previously been a bystander while Eve treated their children with such cruelty had become an active participant in the plot to end her life. Not only was David set to benefit from finally being free of his controlling and heartless wife, there was the additional benefit of him being the sole benefactor of a £150,000 life insurance policy in the event of Eve's death. But David didn't want to be caught up in the murder itself. He knew he had two willing participants he could rely upon, and he began to regularly discuss his hatred for Eve with his two sons. David wanted the insurance money and a clean break and he was prepared to risk his boy's freedom in the process. When Eve wasn't around, he led his teenagers in conversations about how they could get rid of her. Maybe they could push her off a cliff 
or in front of a car, or they could plan a holiday where she would accidentally fall from a high-level balcony. But David was no fool. He knew he would need to have a strong alibi for the murder itself in order to avoid blame and claim the insurance money. He believed that the investigators would likely look kindly upon the two grieving boys and they would avoid being charged with any crime. And so the trio plotted their crime. For months, they discussed the details from staging the scene to how to appear when the police arrived. And of course, they needed to be very clear that money had gone missing so that the police would believe it was a robbery. Despite the overwhelming evidence implicating David in a plot to kill Eve, he continued to proclaim his innocence. He repeated that he had no knowledge of what could have unfolded that night. But Glenn was forthcoming with his description of the events of the evening of the 31st of August 1995. He claimed the trio had opted for a date when there was a darts competition at David's local pub, so his alibi would be rock solid. While he was gone, the boys would carry out the attack and call 999, claiming there had been a break-in. As expected, Eve had told the boys to take the family dog for a walk. Glenn explained that they had taken the dog outside and walked out of sight of the home before they sat on a fence for around 20 minutes. When they arrived home, Glenn said that Eve shouted at them, quote, You two haven't walked the dog properly, you lazy idle prick. Take it for a proper walk. When you get back, brush your fucking teeth and go to your room and don't make a sound. You are spoiling my night and I don't like you. He went on to explain how he reacted to her harsh words. Quote, I went in my room. I was angry. I changed my clothes. I thought, this has got to stop. He explained how he picked up the hammer from his bedroom. I went through to the lounge. I didn't think of anything. My mind just wasn't working right. John was in the bedroom. I just looked at my mum. Something went in my head and I just struck out. I heard my brother screaming and shouting. He was shouting no because I had hit my mum. I told him to get out. I told him to get hold of the dog and just get out. I didn't want him to see it. I realized what I was doing. I said, sorry, mum, I love you. I can't believe it. I heard her making some noise, but I didn't want her to come round and know what I did. So I hit her in the neck. I went through to my room. I didn't realize what I had done until I seen her. I wanted my mum back straight away. Whilst the police now had a confession for murder, 
there were some aspects of the story that weren't adding up. Glenn described a spontaneous event where he had snapped and subsequently beaten his mother to death. But John claimed that their father was involved in the planning of the attack, that this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment event at all. And how did Glenn and John know how to stage the scene with an upturned desk and scattered personal belongings? If this wasn't a premeditated and planned attack, and the timeline of going for a walk with the dog before Eve made the horrible comments which caused Glenn to snap didn't match with the timeline of the 999 call. They also couldn't overlook the convenience of the dart competition, which provided David with a rock-solid alibi for evening. Indeed, the police believed that all the evidence pointed to the murder being planned to take place on that night. This was not an impromptu act of violence, nor was it the actions of a single person, as David would have them to believe. With confirmation that John, Glenn and David were all active participants in the murder of Eve Howells, all three of them, were charged with murder. In 1997, two years after Eve's murder, the trials began. John, Glenn and David all pled not guilty to their charges. So, can premeditated murder be justified in the event of such appalling circumstances? That was the question put to the jury in defence of the trio. Glenn stood by his story of a spontaneous murder prompted by years of ill treatment. The secretly recorded conversations between the boys and their father were played to the court. In them, Glenn can be heard sobbing, quote, Got no dad anymore. Got no mum and dad. I want me mum. He went on to describe how he initially attempted to escape his traumatising home life. There are records of a number of calls to the youth mental health helpline, Childline. He told the jury that he decided to commit suicide so that the pain would stop. He couldn't take any more ill treatment from Eve. He got as far as tying a scarf around his neck, which he intended to use to hang from his bunk beds. I couldn't do it, he told the court. For the same reason I couldn't run. I couldn't leave John on his own. On the stand, Glenn claimed he was inspired by the programme Crime Watch to use a hammer rather than another object. Glenn was asked, Would you have killed your mother without the approval of your father, depriving him of a wife? To which Glenn responded, She deprived me of a life? One thing that the boys' attorneys did agree on was that both Glenn and John 
had not been given a fair shot in life. What they were forced to endure at the hands of their mother was abhorrent. Starting from the very first day when they were born, they had been deprived of love, nurturing and encouragement. And while the abuse was perpetrated by their mother, David had stood by as it was being carried out against them. He too had chosen to ignore their pleas for leniency, for connection and for protection. They were forced to suffer a life of humiliation, degradation and abuse at the hand of their mother. And the only other person who could have protected them from her tirades and taunts was their father. But instead of safeguarding his children, David ultimately chose them to carry out the murder of their mother. And he didn't want her gone in order to put an end to the way that she treated them all. He wanted revenge for the affair that she had been involved in and he wanted her life insurance money. Unfortunately, the boys were merely the means to an end for David. Even when the gig was up and he was implicated for his involvement in the scheme, David abandoned his boys once again in order to feign innocence for his participation in the plot. On the stand, David refuted John's claims that he had spent months plotting Eve's murder and then coached the boys on how to commit and then cover up her death. He called his son's claims wicked lies. But the prosecution painted a starkly different version of events than the defence. They claimed that David was an alcoholic who mistreated his children as equally as Eve, though in different and more subversive ways, by ignoring their ill-treatment and convincing them that murder was the only way out, he was just as complicit as her in their maltreatment. Testimony was presented, reportedly claiming that the boys had begged their father to get a divorce, but David had refused to leave Eve for fear of missing out on the money that he was set to gain from her death. In a strange revelation, Russell, whom was Eve's lover, described her as, quote, a delightful lady. He said, quote, our relationship was special. It was not based on sex. Eve was the love of my life, a delightful lady. After the murder trial, Russell said he still missed Eve, saying, quote, I was in love with her, and I still miss her to this day. Ultimately, the jury believed that all three were responsible for the gruesome slaughter of Eve in her own home. In 1997, John, Glenn, and David were found guilty of the murder of Evelyn Howells. David received a sentence of life imprisonment. John and Glenn 
were initially given sentences of indefinite detention given their ages and roles in the murder itself. David himself received the bulk of the blame for his role in the planning and murder. He was considered the most responsible for exploiting his children as tools to commit his heinous revenge. The judge described David Howells as a thoroughly evil man who groomed or indoctrinated his sons to kill their mother while he was safely beyond suspicion as an actual participant. In his sentencing remarks, Mr. Davis Elliott told David, quote, You were the instigator of this appalling crime, and you suborned your sons into doing what they did. Over a period of months, if not years, you so groomed and indoctrinated their young minds in that they did what you wanted. They acted out what to them initially must have been unthinkable, while you were safely beyond suspicion as a participant. He added, There can be nothing more vile than to get your sons to kill their mother unless, as is apparent from the covert tapes, you cheerfully contemplated their long detention while you went free, notwithstanding any deficiencies in the deceased as a wife and a mother. She did nothing to warrant the terrible death she suffered. Eventually, John's sentence was set at seven years, and Glenn received ten years. In 2002, the boys appealed their sentences, and Lord Wolfe, the Lord Chief Justice, reduced both of their punishments. Quote, Glenn feels that he should have been convicted of manslaughter and not murder, but states that he accepts full responsibility for his mother's death and that she did not deserve what had happened. He states that he saw no other way of stopping the abuse he and his brother endured. He also stated that John has played a lesser part of the crime and had been heavily influenced by his father and brother. John's sentence was subsequently reduced from seven to six years and Glenn had his sentence reduced from 10 to 9 years. So, can abuse and neglect be justification of murder? Does manipulation and grooming at the hands of those who are meant to love and care for you the most diminish the culpability of such a heinous crime? What do you think? Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews and of course your patience. I really do appreciate it and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, 
early release and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Britain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and please stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.